As we humbly approach this uh, Word of God this morning and the table of communion in a little while, I'd like you to grapple deeply and seriously with a singular question this morning. What really matters? What really matters? In a wonderful little book entitled, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, Max Lucado introduces the subject extremely well. He writes, I just want to know what counts. Deep Irish brogue, deep dark eyes. The statement was sincere. Don't talk to me of religion. We've been down that road. And please stay off theology. I have a degree in that. Let's get to the heart of it, okay? I want to know what counts. His name was Ian. He was a student at a Canadian university where I was visiting. And through a series of events, he found out I was a Christian, and I found out he wanted to be, but was, disenchanted. I grew up in the church, he explained. I wanted to go into the ministry. I took all the courses, the theology, the languages, the exegesis, but I quit. Something just didn't click. It's in there somewhere. He spoke with earnestness. At least I think it is. I looked up from my coffee as he began to stir his, and then he summarized his frustration with one question. What really matters? What counts? Tell me. Skip the periphery. Go to the essence. Tell me the part that matters. So I looked at Ian for a long time, he writes, and the question hung in the air. What should I have said? What could I have said? I could have told him about church. I could have given a doctrinal answer or read him something classic like the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. But that all seemed too small. Maybe some thoughts on sexuality or prayer or the golden rule. But no, Ian wanted the treasure. He wanted the meat. Now stop and empathize for a second. Can you hear his question? He was saying, give me what matters. What does matter? In your Bible of over a thousand pages, what is it that matters? Among all the do's, among all the don'ts, and shoulds and shouldn'ts, what is the essential thing? What is indispensable? The Old Testament, the new, grace, baptism? What would you have said to Ian? What really matters? Is this all there is? Sunday attendance, pretty songs, faithful tithings, golden crosses, three-piece suits in some churches, <laughs> choirs, leather Bibles. It is nice and all, but where is the heart of it? Let me ask you, what really matters in your life today? Is it your children or your marriage, your relationships, your job, your health, your finances, what movie you're going to watch tonight, how well it is with your soul? Of course, all those things matter to us and they matter to God. 
But what is it that ultimately draws our focus of attention? Well, I believe that the Apostle Paul had an opinion about what really matters, what really counts in light of eternity, what really ought to drive us in our pursuits, and it's not just his opinion, it's also the Word of God. But even a cursory study of Paul's life indicates that something obviously motivated him. Everything he did, all that he said, the heartbeat of his journey through the last half of his life culminated in one focal point. When he challenged the church at Corinth to, quote, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ, I submit to you that he could only get away with saying that not only because he knew what was most important to him, but because he grasped what is the preeminent significance to God. Indelibly inscribed on the parchment of Scripture written approximately 1,963 years ago as part of a letter to a group of immature believers in the seriously, seriously dysfunctional and morally disintegrated community at Corinth is the secret of Paul's stability, the strength of his message, and the staying power of his influence. I think Paul understood the idea of a bottom line. What really counts when it's all over. Do you? As I share this message, I wonder, do I? Because when you get right to the core of it, when it's all said and done, what really matters in your Christian life and in mine centers less around what gets said and a whole lot more around what's already been done. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would, and follow along with me as I read the first five verses. Paul writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Essentially, this is the Christian life and what we communicate at its life-changing core, right here. It's not about what we say or how creatively or cleverly we say it that matters most. It's not our ability to be persuasive even or even our personal boldness in living it out before the world. It's not about our great spiritual wisdom. What really mattered to Paul and ought to significantly matter to you and me is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's right there. Our crucial concern should be the crucified Christ. For I determined to know nothing among you, Paul says, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that we look at life through rose-colored glasses. But I am declaring under the urging of the Holy Spirit that our life, all of our life, must be lived in the shadow of a blood-stained cross and in the light of a conquered grave. Amen? Does this mean that everyone who becomes a child of God through a personal faith relationship with Christ 
cannot have any other outside interests? Does it mean that I must become a a freak show fanatic on the fringe, give up everything I own, renounce all enjoyable activities and, ho- activities and hobbies, quit doing sports, swear off having fun, and become a street corner sandwich board wearing Bible thumping religious activist. Now Paul's not even addressing that misconception. He's referring rather to his determination to subject everything in his life to the lordship of Christ. We just sang God over all. What does all mean to you? What does it mean to me? What did it mean to Paul? To live life to the fullest measure, filtered through the gift of Christ's amazing grace is how Paul lived. To understand what price it cost Jesus to redeem us and how that empowers us to live a life which will supernaturally attract and draw people to Jesus. Not to ourselves, but to Jesus. In other words, Jesus doesn't necessarily have to be the subject of every one of our sentences that we utter in our life, but he ought to be at the heart of our story. Paul's not suggesting that you can't be a business person or or an athlete or a musician or a contractor. What he's saying is that you can't be a business person, an athlete or a musician or whatever from Monday to Friday and then be a Christian only on the weekends. He implies that we be business people who are distinctly Christ-like. That we are athletes, musicians, parents, teachers, contractors, etc., who are certifiably Christ-like and demonstrably spirit-empowered. We must be arguably different than the rest of the world. It's about doing life with Jesus in the strictest sense of the phrase. It's about becoming dangerously Christian. You know that means to be dangerously Christian? How many of you have read the book by Francis Chan, Crazy Love? If you haven't read it, I suggest you read it, but that's what he's getting at, I think, in that book. That's what he's really advocating, becoming dangerously Christian. Listen, you may have many interests, I have many interests, but the one most important thing that we should care to know, the driving dominant force in our life, ought to be to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. The picture is that of a person who has made up his or her mind on one thing. The word determined here in this text, on verse 2, means, quote, to be resolved, to make a distinctive judgment about, emphasizing this deliberate act of our will. I'm determined, Paul said, and we should be able to say it too. I have determined to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Though you and I may be involved in a smorgasbord of activities, a follower of Christ ought to be fixated on that. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else is governed by those two ideas. Don't you think? For a Christian? Just as gravity permeates every part of our lives and governs every movement that we make, so the cross of Christ ought to influence everything. Is that right? People are perishing. Relationships are disintegrating all around us. 
Spirits are crashing. Who among us today would say, would not say that the system of our world is broken? Our political system is broken. Our financial system is broken. Even our religious system is broken. Why? Partly because most people have no dominating thought in their life, unless, of course, it's themselves. And we're broken. So therefore, the system's broken. People are overwhelmed with choices today. Too many options. Option paralysis. The spiritual climate in most churches prove that Christians are not even immune to this problem. That's why the church is taking such a spiritual hit these days, while religions such as Mormonism and Islam are reporting skyrocketing growth rates. Cults and cult-like versions of Christianity are attracting scores of discontented churchgoers. Why? Because they've taught people to follow a dominant thought pattern under which every area of their life should be ruled. I'm not saying that's all good. <laughs> but the concept, what Paul is talking about here, is what it's about. Whether it's holy war, health and wealth, or word of faith, the driving force is one dominant ruling thought that drives them. And for Paul, the dominant thought that ruled his life as he approached the people of Corinth was not an exalted self, but a crucified Christ. Shouldn't that be ours? It would change everything. In this text, Paul sets forth the total objective of his ministry to them to communicate Christ to the Christian Corinthian community. Sounds a lot like our tagline on our sign, doesn't it? To preach the crucified Christ as the only way of salvation. What really matters? Think about the words of Paul a little later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read them to you out of the NIV. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, whether, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to many. Notice what Paul says here. For I delivered to you as of first importance. That means as a matter of priority. The centrality of the cross is what really mattered to Paul. If you and I are going to climb up on some soapbox or ride a personal hobby horse, whether it's in your life or in your speech or in your thought process, I submit to you that this should be it, Jesus Christ and him crucified. A Christ without a cross is nothing to preach about. Let that one sink into your mind for a minute. A Christ without a cross is nothing to preach about. And yet we hear him preach that way all the time. Without the cross, we would still be in our sins, wouldn't we? Folks, I'm not going to kid you. There are many people who preach Jesus today. 
They proclaim Jesus the great rabbi and Jesus the great intellectual and Jesus the theorist and Jesus the philosopher and Jesus the reformer and Jesus the good man and Jesus the friend of sinners, but not Jesus crucified, the crucified Christ and the redeeming Savior. An old respected man of God by the name of Joseph Parker said this. He said, quote, Paul preached morning, noon, and night Christ on the cross, Christ crucified, Christ shedding his blood that men might not die. We can make no gospel out of any other word than crucified. The cross needs to be a central factor in our communication as we introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them to become his committed followers. And I want to say a disclaimer right now. I know you're thinking, it's the resurrected Christ that we need to preach. And that's true, isn't it? But how are you going to preach a resurrected Christ to people if he first does not die? He can't be raised from the dead if he didn't die on the cross. Amen? The cross needs to be the central factor in our communication as we introduce people to him and to help them to become his committed followers. So, Paul says, I think right here, number one, it ought to be the central focus of our proclamation. When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me ask you a question. Is it the central focus of our proclamation as a church for you as an individual Christian or me as a preacher? As author Fawn Parrish once pointed out, sometimes locating the cross of Jesus in the current landscape of Christendom is like trying to find Waldo in a Where's Waldo book. It takes a lot of serious looking and a lot of concentration. We're living in a society permeated with a different gospel than what Paul preached. In and out of the church, it's often a gospel of self-gratification. Your best life now. Well, look, you know, my best life is not now. I'm looking forward to the best life later. Because <laughs> if this is the best life there is, oh my goodness. We're settling, as C.S. Lewis said, for something that's sub-par. The idea of self-sacrifice and delayed gratification rarely crosses people's minds today. In fact, it seems downright foolish to most people. But Paul called it the power for living and wisdom for life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Look at that verse. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 18 exposes the fact that he was not the least bit confused about his place in the matter either as a preacher or as a Christian. Follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Any gospel that ignores the cross is no gospel at all, according to Paul. The fact is, as Stuart Briscoe rightly says, without a crucifixion, there is no resurrection. To which Paul adds the obvious conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. Vance Havner once quipped that the cross of today is nothing more than a good luck charm, a holy horseshoe, and such an ornament does nothing to interfere with a godless lifestyle because it never goes against the grain of our old nature. You catch that? You catch what he's saying there? Why do you think Satan is systematically eliminating the preaching of the cross from churches, from the gospel, from from sermons? because the cross goes against the grain of our old nature, doesn't it? Basically, we don't want anything to interfere with our lifestyle, especially if it goes against the grain of self-gratification. People actually think they're fulfilling Jesus' commands of discipleship and that we're carrying our cross if we have to go a day without the internet and a coffee from Starbucks or Dunkin' because America runs on Dunkin'. And America goes broke on Starbucks. (laughs) What kind of cross do you carry? What kind of cross do I carry? Or do I wear? What is the nature of the cross we focus ourselves on? Is it the kind that compels us to preach Jesus? Is it the kind that causes some people to squirm in their seats with a bit of uneasiness? Because his cross is not easy. It's hard. You see, Jesus Christ and him crucified is not a memento to hang on our walls, my friends. It is a message that should wrap around our lives. Speaking of the cross, Max Lucado writes this. He says, it rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. My, he says, what a piece of wood. History has idolized it and despised it, gold-plated it and burned it, worn it and trashed it. History has done everything to it, but ignore it. That's the one option the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. You can't ignore a piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming that he is God on earth. Jesus Christ and him crucified It is either the greatest hoax of all time or it's the hinge on which all of human history swings. 
Our declaration of it is either worthless and utter stupidity, or it is the most profound and powerful message known to man. Which is it for you? So why am I suggesting that the cross should be of utmost concern to us? Because by proclaiming it, people's lives are changed. It's power. So secondly, I think Paul is saying here in this text, it is also the central power for our reconciliation. I, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 to 23 says this, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and by him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of his blood on the cross. This includes you who were once so far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has brought you back as his friends. Isn't that great? He has done this through his death on the cross in his own human body. As a result, he has brought you into the very presence of God. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand in it firmly. Someone once said that in the garden, a tree once caused our death, but in the cross of Christ, the tree has caused our life. According to the scriptures I just read, we who were far from God, and by the way, the word in the, uh, in the New American Standard says we were at enmity with God, and the original word in the original language means you were as far away from God as you could possibly get. How far is that? But through personal faith in the crucified Christ, we have been made his cherished children. That's the power of love. Christ's love. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The central object of our proclamation, the central power for our reconciliation. Thirdly, Paul says, it should be the central substance of our exaltation. Paul says that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers in this age understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is our exaltation. Again, in a book entitled, It's All About You, Jesus, Fawn Parrish writes, have you ever watched a soccer game on TV? As the camera pans the field and follows the ball, all of a sudden you become aware that there is an advertisement way off in the back on a, a sign, you know, surrounding the field. Our presentations, she says, of Jesus are often like that. The close-up shots are all, are all of us. Jesus is far off an almost subliminal background. He's the commercial, not the main program. 
He's in the crowd shot, not the close-up. He is the assumed subject of the sentence, not the heart of the story. She says, Jesus is in the picture all right, but like Waldo, he's not the preeminent part of the presentation. He just blends into the background. Many years ago, she writes, author Roxanne Brandt saw a vision of people ministering on a platform. They were terrific. The audience was receptive. But then she noticed Jesus. He was off in a corner, out of the spotlight, and it broke her heart. As leaders, our natural tendency is to steal the show, isn't it? We love attention. As an audience, we have to admit that we are loaves and fish people. We love the spectacular. We are naturally attracted to everything but Jesus. We need to be honest about it. The spotlight has always had a tendency to bounce off of him and onto us. My friends, these things ought not to be this way. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, as for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago, and the world's interest in me is also long dead. You think you could live your life that way? You think you could live that, your life that way with no one in the world or the world noticing who you are? Complete anonymity? But rejoicing in the fact that they know who Jesus is because of the way you've lived? It seems, at least for me, that a lot of the time I am so far from that place. What about you? As a Christian, what is your boast? What is the root of your spiritual identity? Is it the particular church you attend or the teachers you sit under, the ministries that you're part of, the person that led you to Christ, maybe? When you talk about your faith, if we talk about our faith. What name comes up most often? What spiritual focal point dominates the dialogue? Is it Jesus Christ and him crucified? Albert Einstein once spoke of Jesus as the, quote, luminous Nazarene. It's kind of a cool title. Is he the luminous one in our life? Does he radiate through the heart of your thoughts and the activities of your daily life? How important is Jesus to us? How valuable is his cross to us? A little over a month ago, last June, Christie's in New York auctioned off a guitar played by David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. You know what the auction price was? $3,975,000, making it the most expensive guitar to ever sell at auction to date. 
1969 Black Strat was part of a larger collection, also owned and played by Gilmore, which ultimately brought, get this, 21490750 dollars. The most valuable musical instrument sale in history. Simply because Gilmore's hands graced a couple of common everyday instruments. The guitars became revered objects of importance. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, points out that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. He was executed by the authorities about 2,000 years ago. Yet today, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted that he would. He so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on the faith of the earth. But then Dallas asks a few defining questions. He says, what is it really that explains the enduring relevance of Jesus to human life. Why has he mattered so much? Why does he matter now? Why does he appear on the front covers of leading news magazines two millennia later? Why even is his name invoked in cursing more than that of any other person who has ever lived on earth? Why do more people self-identify as Christians by some estimates 33.6% of the world's population than any other world religion? How is it that multitudes today credit him with their life and their well-being? The answer is that he comes where we are and he brings us the life we hunger for. Four verses into John's gospel we read, In him was life and the life was the light of men. Again, Willard suggests to be the light of life and to deliver God's life to women and men where they are and as they are is the secret of Jesus' enduring relevance. God will not allow us to ignore his son or his cross. Isaac Watts understood Paul's sentiment when he penned the words of a timeless hymn. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. How often do we do that? Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And then he concludes with this thought. We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're of present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. You know, I think Isaac Watts understood what really mattered when he penned that hymn. We cannot show a people a Christ without nail marks in our hands or in our life. We can't show the world a Christ without nail marks in his hands. Because that's not the real Christ. 
The marks of crucifixion were the proof to Thomas that Jesus was the risen Christ. Why do you think those nail marks were still there after his resurrection, in his glorified state? Because we cannot separate the gospel or Jesus from the crucifixion. What more or less might it look like to the world if those nail marks were shown? Maybe a little more self-sacrifice and a little less self-preoccupation? A little more spiritual character, a little less hypocrisy? A little more personal morality and a lot less marital infidelity? A little more compassion? A little less violence, a little more mutual commitment, a lot less individual betrayal. More concern for responsibilities, less demands for rights, more practical joy, less emotional depression, more health for one's soul, less enslavement to sin. My friend, salvation is in Jesus' name, not ours. It is through his message, not ours. It's by his sacrifice, not ours. Not the apostles, not anyone else's. Our hope is built on Christ crucified, not the church glorified. Christ will glorify his church as a pure and spotless bride when he comes again and receives her to himself. That is not our job to lift up the church. It is Jesus Christ's job to lift up the church. It is our job to lift up Jesus Christ. It is built on a risen Savior who first went to the cross, not on a religious system that does away with the cross. Being religious without the cross is like having a Ferrari without an engine. It may be a nice-looking ride, but there's no power to get you anywhere. Our crucial concern must be the crucified Christ. So as we come to this communion table today, we realize that knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified is not just the central focus of our proclamation, nor is it just the central power of our reconciliation or the central substance of our exaltation, but ultimately and finally, it is the central subject of our commemoration as we partake of communion together. Let me just say this. Whenever someone truly surveys the cross of Jesus and all that it signifies, the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the healing and the restoration and the power and the life and all that Christ bestows upon us when we come to him, whenever someone truly surveys that cross, they can't help but realize what Isaac Watts wrote, that love so amazing, so divine, demands their life, their soul, their all. So now you tell me what really matters. <laughs>